Al Jazeera podcast. Our school was predominantly white, predominantly upper class. I remember learning that like apparently 50% of the student body didn't receive any financial aid for a private education that was like 80k a year whereas like you know my family has never touched that kind of money for most university students in the United States affirmative action can be an abstract concept but for those who have benefited from it it can be the difference between attending university and not now a supreme court decision has students of color and their allies seeing all that slip away the court has just issued a landmark ruling on affirmative action, officially ending the practice in college admissions processes. The court's six-justice conservative majority said the schools discriminated against white and Asian-American applicants by using race-conscious policies that benefited students from underrepresented backgrounds. I have a feeling that we're going backwards. Erica Kaunang graduated from Haverford College in Pennsylvania last year. She's the first in her family to go to college. It just feels like no matter what we do, we're never going to be good enough. And that all the opportunities that we work so hard for and that we deserve just as much, if not more, that we will continue having to fight for scraps. Supporters of affirmative action say it addresses structural racism in the U.S., Data suggests such programs have increased the number of minority students at elite universities. Critics say that it's at the expense of others. Harvard said if it were to not include race in their holistic review, Black and Hispanic enrollment will decline by almost half. So how far-reaching will the effects of this Supreme Court decision be? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. So let's start with an introduction. My name is Suman Pendikor, and I am the founder of Suman Pendikor Consulting. I spent a little over 20 years of my life in higher education, working in social justice education centers, working in cultural centers, eventually as a chief diversity officer, working on local and national issues, usually based in Burbank, California. That's our home, and we've lived in Los Angeles now for 20 years. But you, like me, are originally from the Midwest. Is that right? Yes, correct. Exactly. Born and raised. Well, not born. Born in Seattle, Washington, raised entirely in Evanston, Illinois. Just literally down the street, all of three miles away, Malika, to Northwestern <laughs> University. Ended up being heavily involved in the struggle, specifically for ethnic studies, Asian American studies during my undergraduate tenure, and doing all the things that we do, dancing in every Indian cultural performance and, you know, creating havoc and mayhem generally. Well, as a fellow Northwesterner, then I have to say thank you for paving the way for those kinds of studies at Northwestern. Last month, the Supreme Court voted six to three to end affirmative action, ruling that colleges must stop considering race as a factor in their admission policies. The U.S. Supreme Court dealt a major blow to affirmative action in higher education, striking down race-conscious admissions programs at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina. What was your first reaction when you heard that news? 
I think most of us who are thinking, reading, studying, working in this expected it. I think that day I cycled between tears, nausea, anger, numbness, back up to anger, and then let's get ready for the fight, yeah. right? As we always do. Yeah, so that was that, that particular day is very vivid. How would you explain or define affirmative action? So affirmative action, very simply put, is a positive remediation put in place in hiring, in education, in contracts, and in other sectors in order to try to fix some of the harms of the past. The United States has a lengthy history from its very founding of genocide, enslavement, and building on the sort of backs and lives of people of color, but most specifically Black people and Native peoples in this particular country. Its real particular place is to push against the idea that there's some kind of level playing field that we're all operating from. And in the case of higher education, colleges and universities, affirmative action is very narrow. It's very narrow, Malika. It's one of many factors, well, it was, one of many factors as part of consideration mm -hmm. of a holistic admissions package um, and designed by, you know, admissions counselors and officers all across the country. For you, as someone who's worked as an administrator in higher education in the United States, this is an issue you deal with. Can you explain what this ruling means on a practical level for people? Absolutely. On a really practical level, that means one of the tools that admissions officers use in higher education admissions is now taken away to try to bring in the most diverse classes the other practical piece is that this means campuses have to get extremely creative. Admissions officers, deans, presidents, etc., have to be really creative about cultivating, recruiting, enrolling, retaining, and graduating classes who represent the changing face of America and who represent the future, not the past. Using race as a factor in admissions was first allowed by a Supreme Court decision in 1978. Not by setting quotas of certain races, but considering it as one of many factors. But that precedent was challenged. First in a suit against the University of Michigan in 2003, then another against the University of Texas in 2016. Both times, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of considering race in admissions. The United States Supreme Court issued a pair of affirmative action rulings today, the first major clarification of this controversial issue in a generation. Affirmative action in higher education is constitutional. In a 4-3 ruling handed down Thursday morning, a divided Supreme Court upheld racial preferences in university admissions. Take us back, because this is an issue that has affected you personally as well as professionally. You were at the University of Michigan when trials were happening for Supreme Court ruling. Can you explain what was happening? Michigan students hailed the ruling and the law school's diversity. So I was there for my master's in higher education administration. And I mean, talk about a learning laboratory moment, right? Because we'd be in the class talking about reparations, diversification, equity, justice. And at the same time, you would walk onto campus, onto the quad, and see multiple student organizations protesting in a coalition-based fashion to tell the university, fight for us, fight for students, fight for Black students in particular, don't just 
say that this matters. Don't just put this on a brochure, but fight for us. So in 2006, Michigan voters decided to pass a proposal that would ban all affirmative action in the state's public universities. And then that was then upheld in 2014 by the Supreme Court. By an unusually lopsided 6-2 decision, the justices dealt a blow to proponents of affirmative action, allowing Michigan to join several other states that have already banned or limited the practice. So you were there at this pivotal time, and then the result of that was an assertion or an affirmation that affirmative action is a thing that's necessary and needed, and then that was all overturned. When you look back from today's viewpoint, how do you make sense of that? It's a phenomenal question. You know, it's sort of like macro analysis, of course, is that the structural forces of power in this country will always use the tools at its disposal to try to shift the clock backwards. And so even though the Supreme Court, the highest law of the land of this country, determined that affirmative action used in a nuanced and targeted way was acceptable, to take it to ballot initiatives and ballot amendments and putting people's access, human rights and civil rights into amendments, it feels undemocratic um, at the very least. Okay, so you have looked at the data from what happens when these programs are cut. Talk to me about what that actually looks like on a campus. So what we're doing is we're setting up, uh, I think, false barriers to the promise of higher education for students for whom higher education has already been set up as multiple barriers in, in the distance, right? Then we're saying, oh, you don't, quote unquote, deserve to come here. And we can have a whole separate conversation, Malika, about legacy admissions at elite institutions and the whole concept of deserve, which I think is a pretty ugly word, right? Right. What it leaves is the students who don't get in are figuring out alternative pathways. Maybe they're going to different second tier or third tier institutions, which have been the victim of the defunding of education as a public good as a 40-year project of the American right wing. Mm. So what you're saying is, hey, you students, you don't get to go to this institution. Go here, go here. It's going to be fine, except you're also stripping those institutions. Mm. So then what we're saying is, okay, you don't get to access that education that Sarah and Becky get to. Then you've got the students who are there at those institutions, specifically talking about the students of color, And let's really bring it home specifically to Black students. Black students are already hyper-minoritized in almost all selective and highly selective institutions. So we're talking anywhere from 2 to 4% of students on a campus. Literal drop in the bucket, right? And then we say, hey, go to this environment that hasn't been cultivated for you, hasn't been shaped for you, in which students are still fighting. And then we say, sink or swim. Mm. And if you can't cut it, it's on you. That's the same sentiment that Harvard student Sidney Wiradu shared in a speech he made during a protest on campus in July. Affirmative action programs do not mean that Black and minority students get an advantage in admission to Harvard. It means that despite the infinite disadvantages that America puts on us, we have fought infinitely harder to seek higher education. So what led to the Supreme Court's decision? And how will cutting these programs affect minority enrollment at universities? That's after the break. I'm Charles Dance 
your narrator for Hindsight, a dramatized podcast from Al Jazeera. In this season, we hear from some of history's most notable women. An unconventional and extraordinary artist. Me? I am Frida Kahlo. A communist revolutionary. Everyone in China knew my face. You've heard of them. Now it's time you hear from them. Hindsight. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So, Saman, the research shows that it wasn't just in Michigan where the detrimental effects, really, of the banning of affirmative action has been observed. California banned affirmative action in the late 1990s. In the 90s, Californians voted for Proposition 209, which banned public universities from considering race. What was the effect? The effect was immediate, Malika. Immediate, sharp drop Mm. in the admissions and enrollment of students of color, specifically Black and Latin students. And again, we're talking about California. Historic large Black populations, historic large Latin populations, right? We saw a drop in the recruitment admissions of Southeast Asian students. And they've tried multiple pathways, by the way. They've tried multiple forms of analyses to say, well, can class stand in for race? And this is another piece that we know. There is nothing that can replace race. In this country, class and race are tied together so tightly. And that's been engineered, right? That's been deliberately designed. Class is not a proxy and is not a stand-in for race. Because we also have the existing research that demonstrates that when institutions try to sub in class, that what you do is you end up with more white students than black students. There is no substitute for race because racism is the issue. You looked into the data. How sharp was the drop? So undergraduate, black undergraduate enrollment at the University of Michigan was 7% in 2006. And in 2021, it was down to 4% even though college-age Black Michiganders were 19% of the state. Native American enrollment, once as high as 1%, which, by the way, is a terrible percentage, and that we have to say as high as 1%, Mm -hmm. dropped to 0.11% by 2021. In California, you know, you asked about California as well, Prop 209, which is the one adopted in 1996 that banned racial preferences in admissions, the percentages of Black and Latino students at UCLA started to fall fast. 2006 was a turning point. By the fall of 2006, we're not even talking about percentages. There were 96 Black undergraduate freshmen in the class of nearly 5,000 at UCLA. Wow. 96. So we're not talking percentages anymore. (sighs) I just said 96 out of 5,000 at UCLA. I can only imagine then what it must be like to be one of those 96 and be surrounded by a student body that doesn't look like you and very likely may not have experiences, life experiences like you do as well. In fact, they had a nickname called the infamous 96 Mm. because it was so marked and so vivid, right? We've had a partial recovery of minoritized communities at the UC system, again, the University of California system is the flagship of, of the state. It's the what we call the jewel in the state higher education system. Black enrollment was 7% before Prop 209, fell to 3.4% by 1998, went back up to 5.9% by 2019. 
and California's Black population as a whole is 6.5%. The man behind the most recent lawsuit is Edward Bloom, a 71-year-old conservative political activist who's helped bring eight cases in front of the Supreme Court since the 1990s. These obligations compel the removal of all racial and ethnic classification boxes from undergraduate and postgraduate application forms. I tell people, you got to follow the money. In almost everything, where's the money? And so when you look at Ed Bloom and you look at students for fair admissions, first thing you got to look is who's funding them. Uh, It turns out their major backers are four extremely right-wing conservative foundations. So he has access to big pots of money and he's doing the bidding of um, right-wing interests. So that's his vested interest. This case was brought on behalf of Asian American students who said that they weren't getting into Harvard because preference was given to other groups. Can you explain how that could be used as a wedge between minority groups? Because if affirmative action is deemed at helping those from minority or disadvantaged or communities that are not typically represented in these spaces, what then does that mean that this case against it was brought by a minority group? So first and foremost, this case supposedly brought in the name of Asian American students, none of whom testified. The one student who came forward after the Supreme Court decision is an Asian Canadian, not an Asian American, who was not even in college when the case started moving forward. We have poll after poll actually demonstrating that most Asian Americans are in support of affirmative action. Affirmative action benefits us. So Southeast Asians in particular, Hmong, Lao, Cambodian, Vietnamese, etc., students whose families who have um, experienced the trauma, intergenerational trauma of war, relocation, refugee status, etc., poverty, are direct beneficiaries of affirmative action in multiple states. Erica, the graduate of Haverford College, who you heard earlier, is Indonesian-American and says she's noticed a divide in who supports affirmative action and who's most affected by it. The narrative of Asians being against affirmative action is a very simplified one. I think coming from a Southeast Asian background, specifically from a community of undocumented, of blue-collar workers like we are a very different type of community that is than that that is being portrayed right now. And the reality is, like, I come from a community that barely has high school degrees, let alone college degrees. And so affirmative action is something that definitely benefits our communities and has helped create the life that we also deserve and work for. And for other Asians to try to work against that is so disappointing, but also isn't the full story as well. So, Saman, August and September are around the corner when students go back to campuses across the U.S. How is this going to affect students returning to school in the fall and applying to schools in the winter? I think it'll have an absolute immediate effect. We've got institutions that are taking a risk-averse method, already pulling back on the way that they look at admissions, recruitment, retention, etc., So those institutions, you will already start to see, if it's not a sharp decline, a slow decline, 
And you've got legislatures and attorney generals in different states who are putting movement into place to harm students who are already there. State of Wisconsin, their legislature is saying, well, the Supreme Court passed this this law that you can't use race consciousness as a measure for admissions. Well, that means you can't use race consciousness in anything. That's not what the Supreme Court said. And yet the Wisconsin legislature is moving forward to target scholarship programs that benefit students of color. The attorney general of the state of Missouri has sent through a note to all campuses saying that they should cut out all scholarship programs for students of color. So you have worked in university administrations. Are there any stories of students that you've come across that have I don't know, might, who might embody what we're talking about, who might not have had the opportunities were it not for these programs. There's also, of course, always the danger of students of color being on campuses and feeling like everyone's looking at me as though I am the affirmative action diversity pick. It's a great question. And I'm so glad you asked it because it's, that's Clarence Thomas, one of his reasons, uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas is one of his reasons for tearing down any race-conscious program is because he feels so strongly that that has a negative impact on students of color, specifically Black students. Mm. And of course, that's not what the data bears out. That's his own personal idea that he's using as a policy-making metric. I have never talked to a student who says, yes, I am here because of affirmative action, because once you're there, you're there. Mm-hmm. It's not like students walk around wearing a badge that says, hey, I got picked. I'm here because I'm an athlete. I'm here because I'm a legacy. I'm here because I'm disabled. I'm here because I'm working class and first gen. I'm here because I'm an international student. You don't wear it, right? The students who are there are selected for a huge variety of reasons. And that's The Take. We'll be back tomorrow. This episode was produced by David Enders with Chloe K. Lee, Anne Zaina Butter, Sonia Bagat, Veronisa Campana, Miranda Lynn, Amy Walters, Khaled Sultan, Ashish Malhotra, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer. And Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio.